Amen. Good to see everybody today. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. And as you do, we have come to the final week of our six-week series entitled, We Believe, the Doctrines that Unite Us. It's hard to believe that this is already wrapping up our summer series We've spent six weeks summarizing 16 of our 17 articles of faith that are found within our statement of faith. Now someone in hearing that will say, well, why didn't we cover all 17? I'm glad you asked. Three reasons. Number one, number 17 is regarding what we believe about the last things, about end times. And yes, we believe the last things are important. We're not just skipping over it because we don't think it's important or we're scared to dive into it. No, we're, we're skipping over it. One reason, kind of bring us to the second point, is because we believe it's simple. Uh, what we believe is simple. Um, I'll read it to you. Uh, we believe in the personal and visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth and the establishment of his kingdom. We believe in the resurrection of the body, the final judgment, the eternal joy of the righteous in the Lord's presence, and the endless suffering of the wicked. Meaning we actually believe a lot of things as it pertains to the end times and the last things. But here's the thing about what we believe here at Harvest Point. We don't get bogged down in the speculative we don't get bogged down in whether uh, you're historic pre-mill or a-mill or post-mill or whether you're sitting there thinking, what in the world is a mill? Um, and like, all I know is that Jesus Christ is returning, and when he does, he's going to bring judgment when he comes. If that's you this morning, you have a place here at Harvest Point Community Church. But reason number three is that we're going to spend 13 weeks this fall walking through and looking at the book of Revelation. So we're going to begin on August 22nd uh, walking through a study of John's, well, the revelation that John received from Christ, known as the book of Revelation. So we want to know about some understanding of end times. Let's come together. Let's look at it from the scriptures. But now as for our topic today, we're looking at what we believe the Bible teaches about Christian conduct. That is how we're living as Christians in a fallen world. And not just how we're living as Christians individually within this fallen world, but how do we do so collectively as Christians, as the church within this fallen world. So our statement of faith, reading in Article 16, we believe that a Christian should live for the glory of God and the well-being of others, particularly by communicating to all peoples the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A Christian's conduct should be blameless before the world. He should be a faithful steward of his possessions, and he should seek through the strength which God supplies to realize for himself and others the full stature of maturity in Christ pressing after a heavenly life in joyful obedience to all Christ's commands. Now, while there are many passages that we could turn to to flesh this out further, today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, 
verses 13 through 16. But before we read those verses, let's consider the context that is kind of around these verses. And for that, you flip back, or you might not even have to flip, you just got to look back to verse 1. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, with, with Jesus seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So crowds are, are following Jesus everywhere at this point. They're amazed at his miracles. They're perplexed by his teaching. Many are wondering, uh, is this the Messiah? Even though they have a, a misunderstanding of what the Messiah is or who the Messiah will be. But they're wondering, is, is this him? Others being like, hey, this is the coolest thing going right now. I am coming out to watch the show. Like they just want to see what all the fuss is about. And Jesus sees the crowds, goes up on the mountain, he sits down. And we're told that his disciples came and they, they gathered around him. And, and I, I picture the, the scene painted there as such, as Jesus kind of elevated upon the mountain, that hillside, there to teach. His, his closest disciples, they draw in around him and the crowd is spread out however far in the distance. But the word disciple isn't an insignificant word here. A disciple literally being one who follows Jesus. So any follower of Christ is a disciple of Jesus. And so what does Jesus begin to do? He begins to teach his followers what it actually means to follow him. He's saying, you want to follow me this is what it's going to look like. This is what it means. And he lays out a whole sermon with that. It's the famous sermon of the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're looking at today is just one simple part of this sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus making one overarching point through two visual examples here. Jesus using the example of salt and the example of light to make the point that how we live our lives really does matter. Why? Because how we live our lives testifies to who we are. Jesus describing his followers in verse 13 by saying, you are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14 saying, you are the light of the world. The you are being key words in both descriptions. It's identifying. If you are my followers, this is who you are. Now let's, let's take a closer look at these. Starting with what it means to be the, the salt of the earth. Number one, Christians are the salt of the earth. And what we don't want to do here is overcomplicate this. We have a tendency to do that. We want to read too much into things. 
Because what, what Jesus is doing here is he, he's providing a, a fairly simple but yet rhetorical question for those gathered around him to think about. He's asking, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Everybody around him is kind of probably looking at him like, what? Because they understand that this is kind of a rhetorical question, or at least they're confused by it. Because one, the answer, it's kind of a twofold answer to this rhetorical question. One being, it can't. If, if salt has truly lost its taste, there's no way for the taste to be restored. But here's where the rhetorical part really comes into play. Real salt, that is like sodium chloride, it can't lose its taste. Table salt, with all its additives, it can spoil over time, but not sea salt. Pure salt is always salty. It is what it is. It's salt. And that's Jesus' point. If you are the salt of the earth, you will by your new nature be salty. And by salty, he's not referring to the foul-mouthed, grumpy person who's just always angry about everything. That's not the kind of salty that he's referring to. We, we know those individuals. They, too, put off a distinct taste and flavor to the world, but that's not what Jesus is referring to. So consider the cultural context of Jesus' day for a moment as a means of understanding the application here. Those listening to Jesus would have associated salt most commonly with its use as, as a preservative, while we most commonly associate salt with what? Let me put some more on my food, right? But we want to have a little bit more seasoning that goes along with it. But Jesus' followers would have likely understood him saying that they were to be the salt of the earth with the idea of having a preserving effect. So consider this thought for a moment. What if you were to remove all Christians from the world, all Christian teaching and influence, gone. Just take every bit of it all out, what would be the effect? It's really a horrifying thought, isn't it? I mean, really think about how horrifying that would be because even many who we would deem as being the most liberal among us still hold and are influenced in, in many aspects by Christianity, whether they realize it or not. But if you take every bit of that away, like no more Christians, no more gospel influence, nothing, what would we have? A direct freefall into depravity. Why? There'd be nothing to hold it back. The, the floodgates would be open which is why there's a significant need for Christians within the secular society of which we live. Christians are to be the salt of the earth, of the world. Not simply retreat into our holy huddles, find things that are most comfortable for us and let's escape over here. You know, we're to be in the world but not of it. Meaning we're not to blend in. We must not blend in. Rather, the gospel that we preach, the fruit that we put forth, pushing against and penetrating into the world in which we live. Now with this, we need to consider another effect of, of salt. That is that salt stings. 
Think about that for a moment. When I was in Israel, I, I had a chance to visit the Dead Sea. Massively large salt content within the Dead Sea. Almost ten times the salt content of the oceans. Very, very, very salty. That's the name of the sea. And I stepped into the water that day, not realizing that I had a large kind of cut down the back of my, my leg. Scrape that I had picked up and I did not realize what did that high concentration of water do the moment it hit my leg and the wound on my leg? It stung. It was like somebody took peroxide and just poured it all over the back of my leg. Now, peroxide, what, is it, what does it do other than sting? Well, it, it cleans and it helps bring about the, the healing process, but it stings. It's not comfortable. So when you go to pour it on and when you know it's coming, you're kind of like, and you pour it on and there, there it goes. Now consider the imagery as it applies to our lives as Christians. The healing that God offers this world comes from where? Christ. The truth of the, of the gospel, which is presented through who? We as his followers. And what is the message have the tendency to do? What does this message have the tendency to do? To sting. The Spirit using God's Word to expose and convict of sin and by God's grace bring forgiveness and healing to the lost. But at the same time, we need to be mindful that as Christians, that the sting of the gospel, the sting of being salt of the earth, may also bring persecution among us and upon us. People aren't always going to like the truth that we proclaim. They're not going to agree with the stances that we take. And like John the Baptist, we must be willing to speak and stand for the truth regardless of the cost. Now with that, let's turn our attention to number two. Christians are the light of the world. Which is a striking statement. Really, when you stop and you consider it, Christians are the light of the world. Especially when we consider Jesus' words in John chapter 8, verse 12. I'm going to give you just a moment to flip over there. Keep your finger in Matthew, but flip over to John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus speaking to those gathered around him. This time he's speaking to a group of Pharisees. And he says what? He identifies himself. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus referring to himself as what? As who? The light of the world. Now keep your finger there and look back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Referring to his disciples, his followers as what? the light of the world. So now the question is, how is that possible? How are Jesus' followers the light of the world and Jesus himself the light of the world? Back to John chapter 8, verse 12. And Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Now, we could break down the how of that question all day long. We could go back two sermons and listen to the salvation, understanding what we believe about salvation. But Jesus is saying those who follow him will have the light of life. How? Because we're united in Christ. Essentially, when it comes down to it, we are united in Christ because we have been born again. As such, we are the light of the world. We shine as light because it's our new nature to shine. It's who we are. You are the light of the world. It's not you may be or you might be. This is who you are. See, what we have in these verses isn't at all hard to understand. We want to make it more complicated than it is. Children, you get this no problem, right? I need children's participation here for a moment, or at least just help me to follow along, because children help get this. The church here is a city on a hill. Church, as God's people, as followers of Christ, is light. So Christ's church is a bright city on a hill. And children, again, help me here. Can you hide a bright city that is set on a hill? Think about that more. Can, can you hide a bright city that is set on a hill? No. Why? Because it's all lit up. Like if it's nighttime and you're approaching a, a large city, you know that you're approaching a large city, right? Why? Because you can see the light from a distance. Especially if you're going through the Midwest and you're flatlands and you've got a city that's off in a distance, you can tell that you're coming up on that city for a long time because you see the lights in the distance. You can't hide a city on a hill. That's silly. Now look at the other example Jesus gives, that of a lamp. You don't light a lamp and then hide it under a basket, do you? That too would be silly. Like, why would you do that? Think about a lamp in your bedroom. Would you put a lamp in, on the nightstand or on your, under your bed? Well, on the nightstand, right? Why? To light up the room. Now, you might put the lamp under the bed if you're going to play under the bed and have like some time under there because you want light to expose the darkness that is under the bed. But what Jesus is saying here is, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Be the light that penetrates the darkness. Let your light extend far and wide. In other words, Jesus is saying, be who you be. No salt, no light then what evidence do you have that you are a follower of Christ? What fruit are you putting forth? There is none. What good is a lamp placed under a basket? I'll tell you. It's the equivalent of a local church that doesn't hold up Christ in the gospel as preeminent. It's worthless. Sure, a church may draw a crowd but if Christ isn't preeminent, then it's not shining for Christ. It's not making followers of Christ. Maybe making followers of a particular pastor or a particular idea, but not of Jesus. Which brings about an important question for us to consider. How do we shine brightly? 
And how do we remain salty as a local church within this fallen world? One answer to this question, because there's more than one answer to this question, but one is through the practice of meaningful church membership. So not a crowd, just a crowd that gathers on a Sunday morning, but a gathered people committed to giving their whole life to following Christ and community within the local church. And the question is, how do we do this? Well, this is where we we move from what we believe to actually putting what we believe into practice, which is the purpose or one of the purposes of our church covenant. A church covenant being a document almost every single church, whether people realize it or not, has. Maybe tucked away somewhere, maybe people don't realize it, but it's in the documents somewhere. But it's a document that is intended to be like wedding vows, in a sense, as it stages, it states how, how we are to commit our lives to living out the beliefs that we share together within community. So let's, let's take a look at ours, starting with the opening kind of paragraph. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, And to give up ourselves to him and having been baptized upon our profession of faith. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. So that introductory paragraph is identifying who we are in making this covenant. Who is making this covenant together? One... It's those who have been brought together by divine grace. Not by works, but by divine grace. Two, those who by God's divine grace have been brought to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus. Again, not by works, but by grace. And in that belief, we give our lives to follow him completely. And three, we have been baptized upon our profession of faith in Christ. Then we, as members of this local body of believers, we covenantly commit to nine things that follow within the church covenant. Now, they're listed in paragraph form when you read it, but I've broken them down into nine points that we're just going to walk through one by one to say this is what we believe to live by, how we're committed to live by as a church. So if you're a member of this body, this is what you've covenanted to co- and committed to. If you're prayerfully considering about being a member of this body, this is what you would be covenanting and committing to. Number one. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Meaning anything that would remotely cause us to lose our saltiness or dim our light, we're going to strive to peacefully deal with. We're not going to hide it under a basket or pretend like it doesn't exist. People today talking about unity a lot, but very few willing to do what it takes to achieve and maintain biblical unity. Have a question or concern about something or someone within the body? Well, we as covenant members commit to, to go to the source and talk it out peacefully. Two, we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. 
exercise and affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and encourage one another as occasion may require. Meaning if, if we see a brother or sister struggling with or stepping into or has fallen head first into sin, we commit to love them enough to, to care for and to watch over them. We commit to care enough to speak up and to reach out in care. We're not content to, to just sit idly by while another brother or sister in Christ looks to dim or lessen the light or lessen their saltiness of, of their or our collective gospel witness. Now, does this come easy, this type of engagement? No, not at all. It requires mutual, loving trust, which requires time, requires work to develop it can't be developed while living life in isolation. Hey, just show up on Sunday morning as soon as it's over, dart out the door and be out. Can't be done without a regular gathering with the church body. Same also applies in our need to encourage one another. Sin may not be at all the factor here. A, a fellow brother or sister may just be struggling. Well, how do we know that struggle unless we're in community together? It's our responsibility to encourage one another. But how can we know things to encourage if we're not sharing them with one another? Again, it requires trust. When was the last time you took intentional time to encourage a fellow member of the body? When was the last time that you took time to share something you were struggling with with a member of the body so they could encourage you? Number three. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to, to pray for ourselves and others. This covenant commitment stemming directly from Hebrews 10.25, at least the not assembling part is directing from Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And by assembling ourselves together, we're, we're referring first and foremost to the weekly Sunday gathering. Now, not exclusively to the weekly Sunday gathering, but th this time together that we're, we're doing now. This is the one time of the week where the entire church is called to gather together. This is the one time of the week when we sit under the teaching of God's word together in unity. All hearing and participating in the same things. It's the one time of the week where we, we fellowship and pray and Sing and partake of the Lord's table together as the body. It's why we start each service with a call to worship. We're calling the gathered church together to worship Christ together. And with our closing benediction, we're, we're sending the church out to be salt and light to the world. This isn't a program we put forth for the convenience of those who want to attend when they're able. It's the family gathering together each week to be fed from the word, to pray together, to fellowship, and partake of the Lord's table together. Now, should we also gather with, with other small groups and Bible studies and get together for coffee and discuss God's word together? Absolutely. But nothing Nothing should be placed on our calendar, 
on a regular basis that supersedes our commitment to gathering in person as the local church. Vacations, yes, they're going to come. Sickness, yes, it's going to happen. Those things are understandable. But meaningful membership means our gathering together matters enough to work our calendars around the weekly gathering of the local church. Friends, small groups are great, but they are not the church. They're a small portion of the church. They're not a sufficient substitute for missing the Sunday gathering. Meaning as a covenant member of of Harvest Point, you're committed to or commit to making the weekly gathering of utmost importance. And you've committed or will commit to intentionally pray for those you are gathering with. Want a helpful resource and how to pray for those you're gathering with? You can download a copy of the membership directory off of our website. You need the password for that? Reach out to David or Jonathan. Number four, we will endeavor to disciple any persons under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And by a pure and loving example, seek the salvation of our family and friends. This we is we as the church, not just the elders. And yes, to to be a disciple maker means one has to know how and be able to make disciples, which requires intentionality on our part. We have to be committed to studying and learning and applying God's word. This is where classes like the ones that we offer in the spring and in the fall come into play. Not so we can just take them and be soak, soak up information like a sponge, but so that we can be able to wring it out and have conversations and disciple others that God has placed around us. Meaning as a member of, of Harvest Point, we commit to teach others, family and friends and everyone, the, the good news of the gospel to seek out their salvation, to make disciples. So I'll ask you, How are you presently fulfilling this covenant commitment? What efforts are you putting forth to to grow as a disciple? Have you considered signing up for the fall classes that are available? And see, for for church discipleship and evangelism to take place in in a healthy manner within a church, we have to be committed to teaching and believing the, the same things. That's why to be a member of this church, one must affirm our, our statement of faith. It's saying, that, hey, this is what we believe as a church, and I'm in agreement with these beliefs. Our teaching centering around what we believe. Now, we, number five, we will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. This covenant commitment being different than the first in that this falls more under the umbrella of of general caring for one another. One member is in need, then the others are are there to to help. It may be through preparing meals. This church is great at preparing meals. But it's more than that. It's actually caring about another's needs and another's interests more than your own. Taking time to, to get together and Lending the the listening ear. Follow up with prayer requests and see how another is doing. One brother or sister is hurting. 
We as the body commit to, to come along and bear with them in those burdens. And yes, the, the larger we get, the smaller we have to become. Never going to know everyone intimately. Never going to know everyone in the church the same way. But everyone needs those connections and those relationships for this to exist. Number six, we will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. Here, most clearly, we're stating our commitment to one another to strive to be salt and light in the world. Which means if, if our light appears to be going underneath the basket, we want our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to speak loving truth into our life and to hold us accountable. We desire this. And that's what a church covenant does. It invites those we've covenanted with to speak loving truth into our lives and us into theirs. This is also where we as a church covenant together to, to shine bright no matter the consequence that our faithfulness may have. Your job looks to, to force you to compromise on biblical truth, attempts to dim your light by pushing it underneath a basket. You resolve that will not be the case no matter the consequence. And we resolve as the church to stand with you. We're committing to live lives that look to shine bright in the darkness of this world. And we realize that persecution may come very well as a result. But we're committed to being the salt and the light. Number seven, we will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. Togetherness is key. We can't do this alone. And praise God, we are not intended to. It's our job as the church, not just the elders, but the church, to preserve the gospel witness of the church. To ensure that what we're teaching is sound to practice faithful, loving, and redemptive church discipline. And when church discipline is needed, to ensure that, the, uh, that it is followed up with faithful, redemptive purposes to reach out and care for the person who has come under that discipline. It is the responsibility of the church to ensure that the ordinances are being practiced properly. We, are the ch as the church, are the ones responsible for receiving members into the body. Our aim is holiness, and everything that would look to steer us away from that path, we must guard against. So we as members commit to this end. Number eight, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. And yes, this is referring to our time and our talents and our treasures. We commit to give of our time in service within the church. We commit to give of our talents in doing the same. So no one is sitting idly by as a spectator within the body. Now your service may not be a visible thing on a Sunday morning 
But as a member, you commit to use your time and your talents in the life of its church in fulfilling its mission. We also commit to, to give of our treasure. Now, what do we mean by giving of our treasure? Why don't we just say tithe? Because we don't see the tithe mandate within the New Testament. Some of you are like, all right, maybe this is a church I can get a part of. <laughs> see, a tithe, typically understood as being 10%. But then, when we look back within the Old Testament, a, a tithe or amount of required giving actually far exceeded 10% of one's annual income. So what do you think the, the New Testament teaches regarding our financial giving? Well, we see it as sacrificial giving. that is given as an overflow of the grace that we have experienced in Christ. It's giving of our first fruits, not of our leftovers. And we call it sacrificial giving for a reason. It's significant enough to be a sacrifice. We're having to give something up to make this giving possible. So for some, this may well exceed 10%. For others, it may not. And for others, 10% may be the goal to strive forward to. But either way, we collectively commit to, to give sacrificially to this local church to help support the ministry and expenses of the church and help spread the gospel through the nations. Number nine, we will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Church, this is simple. If and when the Lord moves you and your family away from Jefferson County or this surrounding area, you're relocated for work or whatever it may be. In doing so, you commit to unite with another local church where you can carry out the, these covenant commitments with them. Why? Because meaningful church membership is essential to faithfully following Christ. So now the question is, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Well, we want to give you time in the coming weeks to, to listen back to any of the sermons in this series that you may have missed. Contemplate what you've heard. Read through our statement of faith more thoroughly for yourself. Read through our church covenant. Both documents are easily found upon our website. Ask any questions that you may have. And if you're not presently a covenant member, whether you've been just visiting with us over the last few months or maybe you've been with us for a while, but you're not presently a covenant member, we'd ask you to prayerfully consider covenanting with us. If you're like, hey, this, this church believes what I believe and is about what I'm about in the mission of making disciples, I want this church to be my church family. Or maybe you already consider this church to be your church family. Then, then reach out to one of the elders and we'll let you know the, the next steps. Understand that this, these six weeks of sermons counts as the membership class. So there is no extra membership class that you have to go through. We've done it all for you. We've laid it all out there. Go back, listen to the sermons. Then we'll get together and we'll, we'll go from there. Now for those of you who are already covenant members... We want to ask you to take time to do much the same. And on 
sometime in the middle of September during a Sunday morning gathering, we're going to formally renew our covenant commitments together. Now hear me on this. This is, does nothing to change your membership status one way or another. But it's a, it's a formal renewing of our covenant commitments one to another like renewing our vows. See, after all we've been through in this past year, this past year plus, this is the time for us to say, okay, this is who we are. These are the people that we're committed to and accountable for. These are the people that I'm, I'm locking arms with to carry out the mission of making disciples of all nations. Church, we've sat idle for way too long. It's time to move forward. And for us to move forward, we have to know who we are. And yes, I understand I'm saying this as COVID numbers are beginning to increase again, which means we don't know what the future holds. Truthfully, we never know what the future holds. We just like to think that we do. But here's the thing. None of that matters. The mission doesn't change. So I'm asking you. I'm asking like I have never asked before. Will you covenant with us for the purpose of making disciples of all nations? Will you now commit to this local church to be your church family? If not this church, then another. Will you commit to joining with this church or another faithful local church to be the salt and light to the world? Not just to have your name on a roll but to live in covenant community with one another. Will you make this covenant commitment with us? Will you prayerfully consider making this covenant commitment with us? And again, if not us, with another faithful local church. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we reflect upon church membership and what it means, we're reminded that the local church is your means of fulfilling your mission of making disciples of all nations. Forgive us when we lose sight of this reality. Forgive us for thinking of the church gathering as one more thing to squeeze into our already busy schedules. Forgive us for succumbing to the spectator mentality. May we instead be the salt and light you've called us to be. May we shine brightly in the darkness of this world collectively as the local church. And may we do so for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and continue in worship.